if you approach everything with a, a sense of play and experimentation and, and improvising, then you, it doesn't really matter what you start with as long as you start, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, and I think that's, I think that's probably the hardest part is, um, is just starting is just go, just go, just jump off the cliff. It doesn't, either the first thing you write down is not going to be great. So just play with it. Um, but if you say, I'm going, if, you know, do I start with a chord progression? Do I start with a melody? Um, I don't know if that's the right question to ask. I think it's, it's just, how do I start? And the answer is just, just start. That was the voice of Chris Donnelly, today's guest, a pianist and composer from Toronto in Canada. It was a really long interview today and Chris and I really dug in some fantastic topics, which personally I was really, really interested in. Um, it's quite interesting doing these podcasts because obviously I'm the interviewer. So I end up taking these, you know, the guests to places that I am naturally interested in. But this one particularly today, I was I was struck just how much I shared perspectives with Chris on a number of things. We uh, we get into a number of my favourite topics, one particularly which is about how you actually really get musical material into your playing and your, your composition. Uh, it's one thing to be able to know about something, but how do you get that to naturally come out in your compositions and your improvisations? Uh, and that's quite nice, actually, because in Chris's studio where we were talking, the piano is right behind him, so he actually plays some examples, which is something that I've wanted to do on the show uh, for, for a while. Um, some other areas that we talk about is the idea of restricting yourself intelligently as a composer and improviser, uh, and that being a very creative thing to do. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, and then also the last thing, which has been a topic I've, I've thought about a lot, which is the, the different mediums uh, that we write on or the different mediums that we compose in. For me personally, it's uh, piano, paper, and the computer, and the values of, of all three, and rather than being only exclusive to one of them, if that makes sense. Uh, it was really fun. I really appreciated Chris coming on, as always, uh, with all the guests, but uh, I had a load of, uh, we had a load of laughs, as you'll hear. Um, very long interview, but uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, so we were, we were sort of chilled out. Um, and as always, do give us a review on iTunes if you have a few seconds whilst you're listening to the, the show or something. It really helps us uh, show up in rankings and uh, for, for podcasts and um, gets people knowing about us. And get in touch if you're enjoying it. It's really nice to hear from people. Um, we are friendly and we won't bite. Enjoy the show and uh, see you next time. So, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the Lean Musician podcast. It's uh, really great to have you, especially on a Sunday afternoon. It's very kind of you to give up your time. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great, Jack. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Wicked, yeah. So um, I was really keen to get you on, as I was saying just before we got on the show just now, that uh, I discovered your blog about six months ago. Uh, I can't remember the exact post, but it was something about developing rhythmic independence uh, in the hands as a pianist. You're a pianist. You're a composer. Um, and you have a, a wealth of experience, it looks like, because I've been since then getting into the blog and really think that you could, uh, you got some cool perspectives on things that uh, our listeners would, would be interested in. Um, but as always, I'd love to start at the beginning for you when you, uh, when you started music and, and what were your kind of, how did, how did you start in music and what were some of your early experiences? Um, well, I, I am from Toronto, Canada, and uh, when I was... I, I'm, I'm, th I'm 33. Am I 33? Yeah, I'm 33. <laughs> and, uh, so about, uh, 30 years ago, um, my mom wanted to put me into music school and my dad 
wanted to put me in sports. So I did both. And um, there was a, a school uh, near, near where I was growing up uh, called Humber College. And Humber College, especially in the 70s and in the 80s, had a very innovative jazz program. And so what was happening was all these graduates were graduating from Humber College and looking, looking for work. So they were playing, they were teaching, they were doing studio work. And one of the graduates started a, a music school. Um, and that music school was early childhood music education, like the ORF method and the Kadai method. Um, but these were being used to establish a foundation for jazz education, not necessarily classical education. I mean, really, they were open to all, they were open to music education, but her primary focus was let's try and get kids playing jazz music. So by the time I was in eight, nine, or 10, I was playing in jazz bands, improvising, playing tunes. Um, and uh, at the same time, while I was doing that, um, I was also studying classical music at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto. So I, you know, when a lot of people start out with music lessons, or sorry, when a lot of jazz musicians start out with music lesson, lessons, I find that their story is, oh yeah, I started out with classical music and I didn't really like it, or I started out with classical music and then I wanted to try something different, so I got into jazz. But I seem to have this, you know, parallel education happening where I was doing both at the same time. I was playing jazz music. I was playing classical music. And then it wasn't until sometime in university where they both started to work together. Right. <laughs> if, that, if that makes sense. They, I, I found the, the common ground and, and was able to see how jazz music is similar to classical music and vice versa. Right, yeah, yeah. It's almost like the way I kind of explain it to some people because it is about basically them, rather than thinking of them as genres, really just approaches or skill sets towards yeah. uh, towards music, different ways of, of thinking about it because they are, well, like lots of genres, but particularly when you say the word classical and the word jazz and refer to a genre, it's about the vaguest thing you can kind of say, really. <laughs> it covers right. such a huge landscape. It's ridiculous. It's almost That's right. doesn't help, really. It doesn't narrow it down. Right. But right. yeah, you, and, and throughout all of your work uh, that I've, I've kind of looked at, that it does, it does, you do see that, like, and particularly in your education. So I think today I'd really love you to kind of explore that uh, with the questions that I ask about kind of you know, how you teach your students, we eventually get into and how you've taught yourself. But um, mm. just to go back to what you said, uh, right at the beginning about was it the ORF methods and uh, something else? Could you explain what those are? Yeah, so um, I, I mean, I'm not a, a specialist in early childhood education, but they have these methods, uh, like the ORF method, and the Kadai method. Um, and they um, where they're very focused on, well, the Kadai method is very focused on the folk music of, right. you know, of, um, you know, that your mother sang. So if you are from Poland, then the Kadai approach would focus on Polish folk music. If you're Canadian, then it would focus on Canadian folk music. And through all kinds of singing exercises, you, you're learning solfege you're singing with other kids, you're learning, and there's integrated theory lessons and performance lessons. And 
um, with with this particular method, traditionally it is being used to then establish a foundation for a classical music education, from what I understand. Right. Okay. So um, it's like the internal map of, of of the way music is constructed. Yeah. Similar. And, but but everything is framed for for kids at yeah, first. Of Anyways, and it's a very linear system. So the the difficulty gets progressively um, uh, more difficult uh, as the student gets older or as the student get uh, increases his or her skills um, the orf method from what i understand is a little bit more um, is a little bit more performance based so it incorporates more movement and dance and play uh, what i mean by play like games um a lot of more um yeah group play uh, group interaction uh improvising games um uh and and i mean all based or, but all based around music and and dance and movement and i guess i guess a little bit of theater yeah uh, so, for, and, and I, I mean, all everything I'm. T- I, I could. I hope I'm. I'm not misrepresenting these these methods. But from this is just from what I understand from talking with my my first teacher. Her name is Kathy Mitro, and she did training in in these methods t- for for this uh, the school that I was a part of. And from what I understand, though, the, uh, these methods are built in a way to not really work with other methods. So if you are a Kadai instructor, you only teach Kadai. <laughs> right. If you are an ORF instructor, you teach ORF. And there isn't meant to be any cross, uh, cross breeding <laughs> with these, with these methods. Uh, but uh, from the conversations I had with Kathy, she said, Oh, well, Forget that. I mean, I can see how they work and work together. I see how they complement each other. Um, let me see if I can get a way to make them work together. Sure. Um, and so she, I mean, and she was also experimenting with these methods and finding new ways to to educate kids through these methods because she was also exploring new territory in music education in the first place because. Um, she was, she was interested in, in getting kids to play jazz music. And in the eighties, this was, this was, this is brand new stuff. Sure. Yeah. Right. Nobody is, nobody is in the eighties. Nobody's teaching kids how to play jazz. I mean, jazz music was going into universities and colleges and academia a little bit in the seventies, eighties. And, and then finally, probably by the nineties, it was getting more and more accepted, but nobody was going the opposite direction and teaching kids how to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, um, so you have to find new innovative methods to, um, and use the tools that are out there and use them and combine them in a, in a way that isn't, uh, isn't thought of or isn't accepted. Sure. Yeah. In order to, you know, achieve your goals of, of trying to bring jazz education to 
uh, to younger students. So it sounds like you had a really good background from a fairly early age with, with these methods and also then playing with people. Um, mm -hmm. Talk us through some of the kind of the really, as you look back, the really useful things. I mean, you're playing with what professional jazz musicians quite regularly from kind of what age? Um, well, I mean, I was always playing with kids. Right. Right. So, and I think that if I were to look back and, you know, pick one thing that was really, really important to my education, it was that I was playing music with other kids all the time from, from when I was three years old, uh, in going to music class on Saturday mornings, it was with my friends, it was with other kids. Um, and when, I mean, when I speak with uh, younger students now, uh, or when I speak with their parents, <laughs> and they ask me, you know, what can I do to get my kids interested in music and all these things? And I say, well, get them playing with other kids. Um, so when it's I a was, social thing. Yeah, when I, when I was uh, doing my classical music education, because I, I had my jazz music education on Saturdays, and then once a week I was going to see my classical teacher, um, it, my, my classical music lessons were always by myself. Uh, I was in a room by myself with my teacher. I, when I was performing, it was always by myself. Um, when I was practicing, it was always by myself. And the, I mean, that works. This is important. You know, music can be a very individual uh, thing, individual pursuit. But I mean, if you look at all other activities that kids would be interested in, you play, well, in Canada, hockey, <laughs> uh, baseball, um, uh, football, soccer, all of these things, the kids play with other kids. So it, it seems to me that if you want to, if you want to get, uh, a child interested in music and playing music and get excited about it, put them in a group with, with, with his or her friends. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was doing all, all the time. It was, it was, it was normal. It was actually abnormal to be playing it solo. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, um, and from, you know, and it, it went from when I was three from, singing and, and dancing and playing games. And then you're playing uh, xylophones and you're playing folk songs and dancing with xylophones and, yeah, and percussion fantastic. instruments. And then, uh, then we were playing on keyboards because everybody in the school knew how to play piano. So we were all playing keyboards and I would play the bass part and somebody would play a chord part and somebody would play a, a melody part. And then, but there was still percussion and drums. And then she, and then Kathy, uh, had encouraged students to take up a second instrument. So everybody played piano, but then some of my friends were playing drums. Some of my friends were playing bass, saxophone, um, trumpet. I never, I never played a second instrument at this school. I, I, I played low brass in, in high school, but this was much later. So you can see how there's this progression of going from singing, dancing xylophones to then playing piano, bass, drums, and saxophone, um, it, it, uh, all of the, all the skills kind of start, start, uh, working together and we were, uh, forming small jazz ensembles. Oh, that's the other thing is that, you know, I'm not, when I say jazz bands and jazz combos, I don't mean big bands, right? Sure, I don't yeah. mean a band of 20 kids, 
I mean, a band of five kids. <laughs> yeah, who each has to hold their own. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, if in a in a big band with twenty kids, that's not really much different than playing in a symphony or playing in a concert band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where when you're in a in a band of with five twelve year olds, the the listening that needs to happen, the interaction, the the uh, the leadership roles that need to be filled. Um, it's it's quite a different it's quite a different environment for music making for kids so than you just kind of playing. Put into that situation early on, so that you had to naturally kind of get used to that that dynamic. Whereas whereas later right. on, when you have to get used to the dynamic, it kind of throws you off, and you kind of think, "Hang on, what's going wrong?" You know. Yeah, well, people who start uh, students who start playing jazz later. Yeah. Um, uh, well, let's say let's take a, a somebody who's brought up in the traditional classical music education where they are practicing by themselves they're you know they're studying by themselves with their teacher and they perform by themselves once they are thrown into uh, a jazz band where in jazz music they're they're or in any not I don't mean in just jazz music this can happen in classical music too but let's just say they are now thrown into a band where they need to listen and they need to respond and they need to lead and they need to follow now there's this whole new skill set that is required for them to function in this context. Uh, how to communicate with your instrument to other people who are also communicating with their instrument. Yeah. Um, so, so I was really, really fortunate having, I was able to, I was part of that, those social dynamics in music from when I was really, really young. Get-go, yeah. Get-go. Oh, it sounds, it sounds fantastic. I mean, yeah, I, I personally wish I'd had a lot more of that. Um, I was, I was more a kind of, I was an only child and I, I ended up studying, I had to develop willpower <laughs> fairly early on because I was really, yeah. really passionate about it, but I had no kind of major mentors around me. Um, and that's not a hugely bad thing, but, um, it's, it's a really interesting point. What I'm interested in, in in regards to your development is because it was, uh, I don't want to say given because that makes it sound passive, because it was there early on, was there a moment where you kind of suddenly went kind of, I suppose, more serious where you thought this is really my thing and you kind of, you can look back and say you stepped up your kind of efforts? Um, or was yeah, it always that... a natural thing? You were always going to do music. Um no, I don't think I ever thought I was going to do music. Uh, I I started to, well, as you, as the as you said, I started to step up maybe when I was maybe sixteen. Yeah, same. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I was always time. yeah right. I was always um, playing music, and I was always active and interested in other things. I mean, I was playing music. I was playing lots of baseball. I played a lot of hockey. Cool. Um, I played way too many video games. Um, <laughs> well, we're going to get onto chip tunes in a bit. <laughs> okay, great. Um, but it was sometime in maybe uh, I, I'm going to say 16. But for me, I, I look at it more in in grade grade 11 in when I was in high school, which I think is around 16. Oh wow, grade 11. We don't have that here. Yeah, we. What's grade eleven? <laughs> What's the equivalent? Um, third year of high school. In fact, English people don't even get that good. You know, they just stay at grade <laughs> eight forever. 
<laughs> yeah, well, we, we're just, I mean, we all just count higher, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I probably maybe around, maybe around 16 where I just realized like, Hey, I really, really enjoy this music thing. Um, and I, I was going out to jazz clubs. I was going out to hear my teachers play all the time. I was playing and jamming with my friends all the time. And I just felt really good about playing music, but I also felt really bad about doing everything else. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, well, all of my other courses in high school, I just hated. Right. And, you know, I've had, I've had some really great um, conversations about with Kathy, my, that first, my first teacher that I mentioned. Yeah. She said that she, when it, um, when I really disliked my high school experience, um, the, I didn't like any of my teachers. I didn't like any of the courses, all of the content was, it's just, it was just boring. And it just wasn't of interest in, interest to me. The favorite, my favorite part of my week was going to music class classes on Saturdays. And it was a full day. You know, I was taking piano lessons. I was taking composition lessons. I was taking trombone lessons. I was in two bands. I was in a big band. And this was all happening at the, at this school outside of my regular education, my regular high school education. And I, and I think because my music education was so good and the, the, the teachers I had were just so good and so committed and establishing that foundation for their students that when you look at, when I, when I go into my science class or my biology class or my math class, English class, it's just, it was just so bad in comparison. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's not, it's not that science isn't in- interesting. It's not that math or English isn't interesting no, it's you just, could have had it the other way around, you know. You could have had, had it the other way around, it's, it's right. It's just about the quality of, of personality, really, or, or more than personality, the, the approach, you know. Right. Um, and so I just, I needed to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I was just so positive about what, what was happening in music and my friends and my teachers and the scene, the local scene. Um, so I just started practicing more. Yeah. And... I was able to finish high school early um, uh, and I, I got accepted into the University of Toronto and it was, it was at that moment when I, I mean, I was serious about it before I got accepted into, into university. I was practicing more seriously, but once I was accepted into University of Toronto, it was like, I, I pretty much just dropped everything else. Uh, I dropped baseball. I dropped all, all kinds of other hobbies or interests and I just wanted to play music because I was just like, yes, I'm in. I'm finally doing something that I want to do. Amazing. <laughs> what a great feeling. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was liberating. Um, and that, so that first day of university where it's just like, wow, you mean I get to just study music all day? <laughs> you mean I don't have to go to physics class? <laughs> Like what an amazing, what an amazing feeling! Um, and you mentioned it back at the beginning about the the two worlds of jazz and classical coming together. Describe to us how how that kind of how that started to happen and and what you mean by that. Um, 
Well, I think, yeah, this it's, it's, um, I'll, I'll try, yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to express it. It might be a little bit complicated. So, um, even when I was, I was listening to all kinds of jazz music all through high school. That's when I, I really started collecting records and buying records and, and listening really seriously. And I think there was, uh, there, there must've been a, a few piano players that I was listening to, well, particularly like, like Brad Maldow. Yeah. And I knew that what he, it sounded like what he was doing was, okay, there's something more to his playing. He's not just playing um, bebop music or jazz music. There's some other style that's influencing what he's doing. Listen to the counterpoint that's happening when he plays, listen to his hand independence uh, when he plays, he's doing things uh, at the piano that are that can't just be coming from the jazz tradition. So I always had had in my mind that there was something else um, that uh, that piano players can do. Um, like, well, like for example, I mean, uh, when, when I was in high school, I, I knew about this thing called a fugue. <laughs> <laughs> there's this thing called a fugue and it's, it's contrapuntal and it requires hand independence. And when I listen to some piano players play, like, like say Brad Maldow or Fred Hirsch, I can hear that they're also using this, this, these contrapuntal textures. So in my mind, it's just like, well, that must be coming from classical music. That must be coming from Bach, for example. So I always had in my mind that there was something more, there was something else. Um, and then when I, w- when I started at University of Toronto, um, I-, I was in the jazz performance program, but I had access to all of the classical music classes as well. Um, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I was also the kind of student that, I mean, by the time I'm, when I'm in first year university, all that theory class and the ear training and all the ensembles, all of that material I had been doing already. <laughs> for like for like 10 years <laughs> so i need so for me i needed to take my education in my own hands and find a way to challenge myself because the jazz theory was not challenging Absolutely. it was, it, it, was it, it, it it's definitely challenging for other students who might not have had the background and education that i have but for me it wasn't challenging so what kind of stuff did you you in terms of your self-study did you get up to so i uh, I wanted to take counterpoint. That was the, that was the first thing on my radar. Uh, I was like, I want to take counterpoint. And there's this, they offer three counterpoint classes at U of T. So I asked, how can I take these classes? And I said, well, you can take these classes, but you need to take classical theory first. And I said, well, I don't want to take classical theory um, because I don't have time because, you know, I'm graduating in a few years uh, can I get exempted? And they said, oh yeah, you can get exempted. You just need to take this exemption test. And I said, okay. So I, over a summer, I taught myself four part writing and, and, and the theory. I like, I, I, I took out the textbook that they use at U of T and I went through the entire book over a summer, um, doing all the four part writing, 
playing them, playing them, improvising on them, See, hearing this is, them. Sorry to interrupt there. This is a key. I was thinking about this recently. You said playing them, which sounds obvious, right? <laughs> but it, it, it is insane <laughs> oh, yeah. how much in education they don't get kids or anyone to play it through. Like I, I did it without playing it in school. And I now look back and I'm too. like, that's not a musical experience. And I, I can't remember when it was. It was in the last interview with um, David Reed. There's a quote from that interview where he says, uh, you know, I'm trying to create a musical. Ex- I'm trying to create a music education that has the experience of playing music in it, which sounds hilarious, but it's so yeah. true. Like playing it is vital, isn't it? Right. Well, and I was able to because I had I had done four part writing before. You know, I was doing. I was still taking my classical lessons all through high school, and so I was doing harmony, but I'd never played through it. I never made any kind of. Uh, sonic connection with what I was writing down on the paper uh, or, or with any kind of physical connection with it Mm -hmm. because I was never playing it. Um, So my, my jazz education was telling me, okay, if I want to learn four part writing, I'm going to need to play this stuff. I'm going to need to improvise over it. I'm going to need to play music that uses it. Um, I'm going to need to be able to hear it and sing it. Um, all of, so all of these things came together and helped me teach myself how to understand four part writing. No, not that, not that I'm an expert at four part writing, (laughs) right? Like just make that very clear. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I, I I don't think I'm great at four part writing. No, but but you take what you need. But I took what I need and I got exempted from the tests (laughs) so I could take counterpoint and, um, those counterpoint classes were, uh, were amazing. I mean, the first one was just writing good figured bass. Um, and the teacher was phenomenal. He was, his, his name is uh, Sasha Rappaport. Uh, he's a theory teacher and composer uh, in Toronto and at the University of Toronto. And he was getting us to write dance suites, you know, in a, in the, Baroque style. So, um, and he would say, let's give a, let give us the first four bars of a minuet and we would have to compose the next four bars, but we'd have to write maybe eight different variations of the, of the next eight bars and modulate them to different keys. But Sasha could sit down at the piano and improvise these, right? Just, and perfect, perfect little, uh, responses to the first four bars. And so this guy was doing what I wanted to be able to do. Um, here's, here's a, here's a phrase in G major. Now improvise a perfect response that modulates to E minor or that modulates to C or modulates to five or, or wherever you want it to go. And this guy was doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then the second counterpoint class was writing fugues and studying fugues and, um, and the third counterpoint class was more traditional species writing, um, um, like the Renaissance music and um, mm-hmm. studying Palestrina masses and writing, writing a Kyrie and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that so that was me venturing into the classical department at UFT. Oh, I was also taking classes in minimalism. Yeah, um, I was studying with this guy named Russell Hartenberger, who is, was one of the original members of the Steve Reich. Oh, wow. Ensemble. Cool. 
So, I mean, if you look up early performances of Steve Reich's uh, music, chances are Russ is in there. <laughs> cool. So I got to hang out with Russ and he did a course on minimalism. And then he put together an ensemble to play music for 18 musicians. Mm-hmm. And, and then I did an independent study with him on rhythm and um, rhythm from different uh, different cultures and from different styles of music and the right. theory behind it. And um, yeah, so, th- I mean, and that's where I, I got into some of the, the rhythmic ideas that I've, I've written about in, in some of my hand independence posts. Yeah. Cause that's, um, a, that's an area that I, th- I personally think is really, I mean, you know, I didn't hear much about it throughout my entire education you know, talking about rhythm, really, it's out of the three of harmony, melody and rhythm. It's, it's right. the most under kind of looked at. And uh, I remember a really exciting course I did. I didn't go to Guildhall, but I went to the summer schools there, the jazz schools. Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. one of the, the most remem- rememberable, memorable <laughs> things <laughs> was, uh, was a, a kind of course taken by one of the drummers there. Um, yep. And it was all about, I can't remember, I'll botch my explanation of exactly what it was, but I just remember him basically uh, transfiguring each bar so you'd like kind of move yeah I really can't describe it but it, it was a really really interesting way of looking at rhythm from a kind of deeply inside a, a drummer's mind it was great but yeah. there's, there's not yeah. enough of that so did you continue that rhythmic study throughout your that kind of that in-depth study of rhythm throughout your uni yeah I, I was I was um, I mean one of the reasons I, I started I, I took that independent study with Russ was because uh, I thought that it was lacking in the curriculum. Um, like, as you said, uh, I, it was, there's a lot of focus on melody. Um, there was um, a lot of focus in jazz music, a lot of focus on improvisation, but it's usually melodic improvisation, uh, theory and ear training. And so there wasn't a lot of rhythm, but as, as a playing jazz music, it's in the, especially in the '90s and and in the in the early 2000s, there was a lot of music that was being recorded using odd meters. So, um, like Brad Maldow and Dave Holland and all of these all of these musicians were releasing records with these odd meters, and. It was, it was everybody's mind was blown because they couldn't understand how to how to play in seven, how to play in five, or and then how, you know how to play in other compound meters. And I didn't feel like that was really being addressed appropriately in my curriculum at U of T. So I took my learning in my own hands and I said, no, I want to do a rhythmic study and actually try to get to the root of some of these problems. Um, I mean, also uh, related is as a piano player is nobody's really talking about hand independence. Uh, the number one question for a jazz piano player or jazz student is what the hell do I do with my left hand? <laughs> Can we, I'd love to, I'd love to dive into that in a very, very soon. I, there was one little thing that I just wanted to ask about the counterpoint yeah. thing. So for someone's, I mean, there's so many questions I want to ask, but I don't think we're going to get it, get through all of them. But with the counterpoint thing, just to tie that off throughout kind of since, since you started studying it in a, in, in the kind of, uh, 
the classic way of, of doing those three classes and then how have mm. you taken that into your playing um the yeah that's um well i think i mean it started with it starts with well, in that first class that i took which was you know writing good figured bass um i mean it was important for me that whatever i was studying whatever i was writing uh, or any piece of music i was checking out i that i was playing it um so if if my teacher gives it gives me assignment to write uh eight variations of four bars or write an entire minuet or write a jig or whatever i should be able to play it um and so there was always a uh, so when i'm playing it at the piano there's there i always wanted to create that physical connection with the music um so that when I'm going through some kind of variation of one five one um, with inversions and stuff. It just kind of like I just it's it's able to connect physically. I just know where it sits on the piano. I know where it fits under my hands. Would it be fair to say that it's it's almost like that? Then you allow the uh, whatever you call it, the unconscious or your natural ability to kind of take care of that stuff. Whereas when you're doing it just purely academically, sat looking there, you have to compute yeah. everything. Yeah, that's yeah. I I I I use autopilot. Right. Yeah, there's some kind of autopilot um, mechanism that that clicks, um, and I, but I think the only way to really turn on the autopilot is to is by many 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 hours of repetition mm-hmm. and practicing and just over and over and over and over again. Um, but other otherwise. Um, it's going to be really hard to connect it to, um, to your instrument and, and, and for me be able to improvise on it. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, to, to improvise contrapuntally or, you know, using more traditional harmony, I'm going to, I just have some intuitive sense of how it fits under my fingers and on, sure. on at the keyboard. So I, I came up with a lot of exercises could you take Is us that, through some of those, just as some examples? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, let, let's let's uh, let's consider um, like species writing. So you so first species is note on note, right? Are you familiar with species? Well, writing? I'd love you to give a, a kind of just brief overview, anyway, just for the sake of okay. the podcast, if that's all right. So you, um, when you're writing species. Uh, you're usually given what they, they, they call a cantus firmus, which is like your melody. And it's usually in, well, let's say it's in whole notes. So the first part of the exercise is to write a line above your melody. So let's say our cantus firmus is a major scale ascending in C major. So I have to create a counter line in whole notes above the C major scale but it has to follow very strict. It follows very strict rules like consonants. Only consonants are allowed. Uh, no dissonance. So no seconds, no sevenths. Um, uh, and, but then the melody has to follow a certain, certain path. So I can't, I, I can't use very many large 
intervals. Um, or if I use a large interval, then it has to be followed by some smaller intervals in the opposite direction. Right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so sure. there's all of these guidelines and sure, all these yeah, rules yeah. I, how to write species. So, um, I, so what I did is I took some of these ideas and I tried to, Oh, uh, part of that is another, another angle of that is, is if you can write a counterline on top of your C major scale, but then you also are going to want to write another, a counterline below the C major scale. So you have two counterlines that will work. So, um, so I started creating exercises with this idea of, um, of, of species writing. So uh, can you hear my piano? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So here we've got our, uh, our C major scale. So I could write, uh, a countess, uh, sorry, a counterline that's, uh, I mean, that's not really interesting. So, uh, just thirds. So, but you could also write it in six. That's also not very interesting. So what if I alternated thirds and six? So that's with the counterline on top. If I put the counterline on the bottom, then it might sound like this. Um, six would be if I alternate them then it would sound so just so I started taking some of those ideas and trying to relate them to playing the piano yeah um and I would play them over different scales uh like um maybe like the bebop scale kind of stuff um and that that's just that's just first species uh and then there's like second species where you write two notes for every one note uh cantus firmus you mean so, rhythmically or in terms of harmony yeah ryth- yeah rhythmically yeah so um let's see if i can so it might sound like uh No, I mean, you know, I, these wouldn't, these patterns wouldn't work. Uh, they're breaking many rules, sure. <laughs> you know, in the context of these exercises. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm so, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but they were, um, that wasn't my, my, when I was relating them to the playing the piano, my goal wasn't to follow the rules. My goal was to create certain exercises. So this seems, this seems like a really, really fundamental thing for, for, for piano players, particularly coming up, well, with anyone actually coming up with your own ways to practice, you know, you're, yeah. especially with jazz. Um, I would say, especially with jazz, I don't know whether that's true, but essentially you're trying to, 
it, it's like you can know all the major scales, keys, arpeggios, broken chords, voicings, things like that. But if it's not in your playing, you're not going to be able to do it easily, if that right. makes sense. So right. that strikes me as one of the many things that you've probably come up with over the years is, right, how can I get this into my playing so that I don't think about it? Is it if someone is someone who's probably got a good foundation uh, and they're getting into jazz for the first stage, what kind of... Um, is there any advice that you can give them about kind of coming up with those kind of exercises? And I, I know that example would have given them an appetite, but how do you think about um, it? Um, I, I think about it. So let's think about, um, uh, so we all, you know, we're all brought up to play our scales and we play them ascending and we play them descending. Uh, but nobody really plays music like that. Um, nobody improvises like that we use different combinations of intervals and, and different, uh, different intervallic patterns that we will use in the moment when we're, when jazz musicians are improvising. So, um, so one, one, one way I've been thinking about it is, um, well, if you take, if you, if you take your major scale, you, why, why not practice it in thirds? Uh, why not practice it in fourths? Why not practice it in fifths, sixths, as as uh, as far as you want to go with it? Um, but what the, one way I've been trying to get my students to create their own exercises is if you look at that pattern and try to reduce it to a sequence of steps and skips. And what you what you do is you're you're going to create your own sequence, create your own uh, pattern. It's like an, it's like an algorithm that you're going to, f- you're going to feed into a computer and out of that is going to become this, uh, this melodic pattern that you then have to repeat many, many times to get it under your hands. So, so this one in thirds is, is skip, uh, sorry, ascending, skip, descending, step, repeat. <laughs> And that's it. Um, and then if you wanted to do something, uh, maybe add a, uh, a sequence, uh, add a step to the sequence, maybe let's say. So that would be ascending, skip, ascending, step, descending, skip, repeat. Um, and you can get as creative as you want with these, with these patterns. So, so kind of um, what, out of interest, what are you, are you, you yourself doing at the moment to kind of challenge yourself with this, this sort of practice? Can you, any come um, to mind? I'm not yeah, going to ask lately, you to play it. <laughs> <laughs> um, lately I've been thinking, I mean, a lot of the exercises I've been, I've been thinking of, um, are all, um, they all have to comply with the shape of my hand. Uh, if that makes sense. So it's really easy to think of these exercises on paper. And, and when we think, and, and it can be a challenge to translate some of these exercises on paper to, um, to the piano. It can be, it, it can pose some interesting physical challenges, but lately I've been trying to think of some exercises that, um, that don't pose physical challenges. <laughs> right. So, so let's say, um, um, let's say I'm going to take a major triad and I want to approach, I want to approach each chord tone 
from a semitone below. So it might sound like... Um, I did play that right. Um, now, I, in, so that's in C major, but that actually poses some physical problems uh, with fingering and hand position. But if you play the same thing in other keys, it's not as difficult. Like if you played an F sharp, it's it's just it just fits under the hand so much nicer. It's just more natural to that key that that particular pattern. So lately I've been interested in finding more of those kinds of patterns that fit with certain keys. Um, and uh, it kind of poses an interesting question that if, if, if you're in a situation where you're playing in C uh, and you want to play chromatic approach tones to the core tones of C, it's going to pose some interesting physical problems. It's going to be harder to play. Um, so then the question is then why play it? <laughs> why not play something that's more natural to the key of C and why not discover those? Right. Patterns? So it's not so much, I must come up with this pattern and put it through, you know, keys sort of thing. Right. It's, it's, it's very similar to the idea of, that was a German like, attempt at a German accent, by the way. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> Sorry if anyone's listening, they're German. It's no insult. I'm just, they're quite strict. <laughs> Just I would let you know, I won't do any accents. Okay. I'm not good at good. Yeah, I think that's wise, actually. <laughs> I think I failed there. <laughs> um, yeah, in the key, uh, it's, it's very similar to, like, if you are playing the trombone, why would you ever play in B major? Right? And I'm not saying, I, you know, there's very good reasons why you would play in B major, but there's also good reasons why you would never play in B major. Um and uh, playing in B major on the trombone is so much more difficult than playing in B flat major. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm being a little, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of challenging that this, the, that thinking that you should learn exactly. Yeah. in every key. I mean, uh, you know, there are really good reasons to, learn your music in every key and learn your patterns in every key and learn how to play the trombone in B major. There's very good reasons to be able to do that. There's also very good reasons to not do that. But you're also <laughs> not at that point. I mean, you've done that. You've done a whole load of that, obviously. So it's, right. it's a kind of different thing, really. You, you know, it sounds like... Right. In, in retrospect, yeah, it, it's, hard, it's hard to make those... It's, it's e sorry, it's easier to make those, those kinds of uh, judgments in or ask those kinds of questions um, in retrospect, yeah. because I have, I have done that work. But when my students now ask me, should I learn how to play things in 12 keys? You know, I give them both answers. <laughs> like a good teacher. <laughs> like a good teacher, right? I say like, well, uh, you, there are good reasons to learn them in 12 keys and there's good reasons to not learn them in 12 keys. And, um, there's practical reasons. There are why you would never, learn how to play some bebop tunes in any other key than the key they're written in like confirmation by charlie parker like nobody's going to call that in e major or nobody's going to call that an f sharp major um i mean you might still want to learn it in f major and e major for the challenge of learning how to play in those keys and for the challenge of transposing and and as some brain as a brain exercise 
But there's also this practical element of practicing as well that I don't think we can ignore as teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, totally. Um, and 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 part of I mean part of performance is there isn't a right answer. You know, there isn't a yes play t- music in twelve keys or no don't learn tunes in twelve keys. The part of the excitement of performance is seeing how all those conflicts resolve themselves. Right. <laughs> you know, like. Um, or see if they see if they do resolve themselves. I mean, in a performance, they do resolve. <laughs> they have you. They they kind of have to resolve in the moment. But um, whether it's pleasing or not, I guess is another question. But um, so there was there was one thing I wanted to jump back to briefly, uh, which was you talking about playing, really getting the the kind of the stuff you were studying at university and before into your playing by playing it at the piano, and you're a pianist. And this is the kind of thing about the kind of compositional approach, uh, or rather anyone who's wanting to be a composer. I found myself at the age of 16 uh, going, crap, I play saxophone. <laughs> I want to I want to compose. <laughs> so, And that was quite a painful moment because I realized I've got so much catching up to do. do you, would that be your perspective on things? Is it possible to to be a good composer and not have facility at the piano? Or And, and I'm kind of kind of referencing ahead potentially about your your explorations and chip tunes and using computers and some really inspiring stuff that you say on your blog about that which which I really liked but what's your thoughts on on that um well my um yeah there's this there I think what you're hinting at is there's this idea that um um when you're when I when you're at university all of the non-piano majors have to take piano courses, but all of the non-saxophone majors don't have to learn how to play saxophone. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that kind exactly. of what you, yeah, yeah. is that what you mean? Okay. Um, and yeah, I don't, it's a, that's, it's a, that's a tough question because even if you are, even if you compose at the computer, um, you have such a leg up. Yeah. If you, can play a piano because um, the the piano offers a a very good visualization of music theory. Um, you know, it's not it's definitely not necessary to learn how to play the piano um, to compose good music. I think what makes a good composer isn't that they learn isn't that they can play the piano, but they just know how to manipulate form. And they have the confidence to be able to to make certain changes that will make a better composition. It's not it has nothing to do with them being able to play the piano. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's. I mean, it's a tough question. I'm not sure where I I can I can see both sides of it. Sure. Um, I th- I mean, I, if I think the answer, unfortunately, is that yeah, from my experience anyway, I'm just talking for myself that that it is you do have to really learn piano if you are serious about developing dexterity or kind of uh literacy as a composer if you really want the big picture of it um yeah i, I mean i mean i don't the the thing with saying that that i don't want to do i don't i don't like to discourage people yeah um, okay good point at the same yeah. time i mean there's plenty there's there's so many different uh kinds of music making programs out there that are designed so that you don't have to play piano. 
so that you and and sometimes it can be re- really refreshing for me to listen to something that has been composed um, that is an interesting composition and they don't know anything about music theory <laughs> you know and you see that a lot uh, especially in electronic music and chip team music where there's some really really interesting sounds and compositions that are happening and and they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so <laughs> or at least so they, let's talk about that because there's a there's a whole series on your website which I'll I'll link to your blog and I'll link to this series, um, which is called Adventures in Chip Tunes, which I haven't actually gotten into. Um, mm. But but tell us about that. So um, I was first. What a, what is a chip tune as well? Okay, so uh, a chip tune chip uh, the style of chip tunes refers to. Um, the music and the sounds that that come out of vintage music chips that were in old computers and and game consoles like the Sega Master System or uh, the the Nintendo or the Super Nintendo. And um, when you write the early chip tunes, um, have a very very unique sound because they were restricted from the capabilities of the music chips that were being uh, that were were being used so when you when you listen to the music from uh, from Super Mario Brothers it has a very distinct sound and all of those sounds are are being created very within very very tight restrictions um, so that's kind of that's so when you listen to old game music, the bleeps and the bloops, it's that it's chances are it's it's chip tunes, yeah, early early video game music. Um, but that scene, the chip tune scene, ha- it started to uh, it it really flourished uh, underground through the eighties and the nineties through um, hacking communities. So there would be a hacker group who would be hacking a particular video game and releasing it underground. And there would be a title screen before you play, before you even played the game, there was a title screen that promoted the game and promoted the hacker group, but there would be music to this title screen. And um, this music turned into a showcase for chiptune artists mm-hmm. to show off their stuff. <laughs> And I mean that evolved into like the demo scene, and um, it's pretty. It's a really, really interesting, uh, interesting story and interesting culture. But uh, year, a few years ago, four or five years ago, I was asked to play in a band in Toronto that required um, that required synthesis, a synthesizer. And at the time, I didn't know anything about electronic music. Five years ago, I was like. I'm a piano only guy. I only play piano. I don't have any gear. I don't have, I don't even really have any speakers. (laughs) I don't have a, I have a keyboard, but it's because it has a piano sound. (laughs) So that was me. That was me five years ago. Um, But then uh, I I was asked to be in a band, a really interesting band. And um, I thought that this band needed uh, a synth sound, synth sounds. So I went out and I bought myself a Nord stage, yeah. which um, if you're a piano only player and you look at the Nord stage, it, like, it looks like a spaceship. 
It's like a spaceship console. It's, it's, it's crazy. So I'm faced with this, uh, this spaceship console and I have to figure out what all the knobs do. So I taught myself synthesis and, um, I wanted to try and imitate. Uh, so I'm looking, so I'm looking at the menu for this Nord stage and it's just like saw sign square. This is what it says. I was like, what the heck do these things mean? I can tell that they sound different, but what do they mean? So I, I, you just start doing research and what, well, what, what kind of music uses square waves? What kind of music uses sine waves? Oh, well, chiptune music uses, uses, Hey, you should invent squine waves, squine waves, (laughs) chiptune music uses squine waves. So, so why don't I listen to some chiptune music? Oh, and by the way, I've been listening to this stuff since I was a kid because I played. I was going to say, is this like a, a way to reconcile the amount of hours you spent? <laughs> oh no, exactly. I was just transcribing. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I was doing my homework all along. <laughs> um, so I started digging up these, you know, my childhood video game soundtracks yeah. and trying to imitate them on the Nord. You know, trying to get the 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 volume envelope just perfect trying to make the filter sound just right um and for the most part i was doing okay except on the nord the nord has its own unique way of making the sounds so a square wave on the nord is going to sound so much different than a square wave coming from one of these video game consoles yeah so i said no i want to get it exact exact you know this is just my mind i was just like no i want to make this sound exactly right so so i went on the internet and and was looking up um how to make it sound right and there's a company in montreal called plug and they have a virtual instrument called chip sounds and the whole point of this instrument is to mimic exactly the sound of these vintage chips but in order to use the to in order to use these sounds i needed to plug them through some kind of um, digital audio workstation. So I started messing around with GarageBand and Logic and and um, uh, what was another one? Reaper. Uh, I ended up settled, settling on Ableton. And, and that's how it started. And I was just started to make chip tunes this way. You know, I have my I had my Nord beside me. I was programming it with chip sounds through Ableton. Um, but what I really, really liked about this process compositionally was that where before I was like a pencil paper kind of guy, right? Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I was, I write at the piano when I have a good idea, I write it down and I just keep on writing and I craft through my writing with pencil. But once I started plugging things into Ableton, it's just like, Oh, Oh, you mean I can write something and then I can listen to it immediately? <laughs> yeah, this is this is exactly it. I was I was because there was a, a bit on your blog which I will be paraphrasing. I, forgive me, but it was it was something like I you were saying you struggled with trying to strive for like a seriousness that's contrary to the. It was like contrary to flow, basically. So your approach, your original right. paper composition was, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, that's a, that sounds that sounds right. So, but there's some, there's something about, I mean, when, when I was at, when I was a student at university of Toronto, it was, uh, I mean, they encouraged you to use finale and, and write your stuff, but there, but, but there was a certain, there seemed to be this certain respect for the person who could 
sit at your sit at the desk and write it by hand Mm -hmm. or write it down at the piano and you know it there is there's some there's a little bit of charm about thinking about it you know i'm by the piano and i've got my ink pen and a candle and i'm gonna write it this way that's kind of cool (laughs) it's kind of neat to think about but um you know, I've been using computers all my life. I've been playing video games all my life. My flow, I, I can achieve so much better flow at the computer because the computer is also my instrument. You know, I'm familiar with the interface. I know how a mouse works. I know how the keyboard works. I take typing lessons. I don't know. There's, I, I can get around the software really, really quickly. Naturally. Right. This is it's not a skill I need to learn. And, and it's have... like it, there's a thing about validating this as well, because we, we grow up in a culture where that's not treated as anything special at all because it's so normal. You know, I remember exactly. I remember thinking this, that I always I never found flow. I mean, whether it's dyslexia or whatever with the written page, um, even when I was conducting, I never found flow with it. Um, I just yeah. had to work really hard to kind of build up a mental map in my head of it. Um, but but the flow thing, I remember just days and days of just spending time at my computer writing and producing from the age of, you know, 13 or 12 or something like that. Yeah. And it, and it just makes sense. But for some reason, I don't know why I've, I've placed that not on a high, I, I haven't given that enough credit. Um, and what I really yeah. liked about that article, I can't remember which one it was. Uh, I'll try and link to it, but you kind of validated it a bit more. And I'm just interested in, in why, why I suppose I need to hear it more than anyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> why why am i why i'm validating yeah it? i suppose so that, well um i think uh well i mean i'm you know me writing it and validating i'm validating it for myself but it's also kind of a message to um my teachers um who were either purposefully or not purposefully giving these signals that, you know, popular music and all of the tools that are used to create popular music um, are not good or they're not expressive or um, cheating or they're sellouts or they're cheating or something. You know, I had, I remember one of my, one of my teachers, um, he said, uh, you know, he described producing pop music similar to just turning a knob Right. Like, you know, and this is how some people actually think <laughs> right? yeah. they don't they don't see the the craft. They don't see the the composition uh, and the flow that um, even though I might be sitting in front of my computer, I'm still hard at work. You know, I'm still uh, being creative. I'm still improvising. I'm still playing. I'm just not doing it in the way they like <laughs> to do it. That's it. There's no, you know, yeah. the, the process is the same. The, it, we're still trying to achieve the same thing. We're still trying to achieve this creative flow. We're just using different instruments. Um, so um, I'm not sure if this is, no, this uh, is really helpful. I was, sure. was going to ask you uh, hopefully more about your, your compositional side of things, your, your process, mm-hmm. because uh, you said, I think it was about chips. Uh, I can't say, I can't talk now. It's a Sunday afternoon, that's why. But about restriction, the benefit of restriction in composition. This is something I've always thought about. So restriction and intentionality, like, because, and there's, there's different angles I could ask a question from. And I suppose it's around the use of your, your classical background, your jazz background, and your, your craft at the piano, um, the use of computers, and then how those two come together. Because 
the computer can be incredibly liberating, like you say, a really good place to find flow, to chance upon things, to transfigure material and blah, 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 endlessly. Mm. But it also can be slightly overwhelming. So I'm interested in, in how you start on a blank page, so to speak, now, uh, or some of, some of the many ways you start and generate material and, and move it around. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I started... One of the reasons I liked the computer so much is because it wasn't the piano. Be, um, it, it, I, I mean, when I'm when I'm at the piano and I'm playing, I'm I'm occupied with playing the piano. So I might have a compositional idea, or I'm working on some ideas, but I'm still playing it. You know, like I'm still thinking about the fingering. I'm thinking about the weight and the balance, and and um, the boundary between composer, piano player, and piano arranger is all mushed together when I'm sitting at the piano. When I'm sitting in front of the computer, it's like I'm a composer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, um, I don't have to worry about the physical action, the, you know, the, 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 my, my fingers hitting the key. I can just, I can think purely about the form of the composition, um, about the sequence of ideas. Um, so I think that, I mean, that was, that's probably the first thing, uh, why I liked the computer. I mean, as far as setting restrictions, um, yeah, I mean, I found sitting at the, at the computer with all the software and all the instruments that are available can be really, really frightening. Um, and I mean, even though I'm, 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 I'm producing my own music, like I don't have all the software, like I have maybe four things <laughs> that I use. You mean, um, you mean virtual instruments or virtual? Yeah. yeah. Like virtual instruments. Like what I don't, are they? Out of interest. Um, here, I got it open. Um, I, most of them, two of them are from Plog. So I've got, I've got, uh, chip sounds. Mm-hmm. I have chip crusher. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, rather than Im- rather than uh, imitating the chips that uh, make music, they're Im- uh, they're imitating chips that or Im- uh, imitating speakers that compress sound. So it's like a it's like a, a it's a really great bit crusher. I have massive. Okay, cool. Um, and I have uh, microtonic, which is kind of like a drum electronic drum. Uh, sound plugin, not very complicated uh, setup. That's all I'm using. Yeah. <laughs> um, at, at least within Ableton. I mean, I can talk about some of the trackers uh, in a sec, but within Ableton, I mean, I, I, every now and then I do use some of the built-in Ableton sounds, but as far as the stuff that I've downloaded and I've bought, it's just those things. Um, and I really like the idea of, of, of composing just with simple waveforms. Um, what are all the things I can do with a pulse wave within massive, um, within massive, you have all of these presets and you have all of these waveforms that you can mess around with, but I'm really, I'm, I'm really content just messing around with one. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, eventually like I'll open my box a little bit or expand the box a little bit and maybe check out a few of the other things. But I would really like to master one of the of the instruments, right? That's why I only have massive. Yeah. For that's such my, a great approach. It really is my my synthesis because I'm sure 
Now, I can appreciate that some people like to get another other instruments because there's something about the interface and there's something about the flow that's built into the software that can inspire them. Yeah. Uh, and have you ever used uh, that, Omnisphere? What, sorry, what's it called? Omnisphere. No, I haven't. Because that's my kind of massive or my chiptunes one. That's that's the one for me that just totally inspired me from the beginning, and it, and it mixes the yeah. two worlds of of sample and synth um, in a kind of really yeah. interesting way. Um, yeah. But but even that is can be overwhelming. You, I mean, you look at that and it's yeah. just like what? <laughs> it's just endless things to do it. And it sounds stupid yeah, that it's I, that I say it's overwhelming, but I suppose it it comes to this thing. I see it in my students as well as having seen it in myself for years that you end up being just like an orchestrator. You end up thinking only vertically and you keep on adding yeah. new things. And it's like, you're not thinking about the form development. And uh, I remember one of the earliest pieces of criticism I got from my first conducting teacher about my compositions, actually, he said, it's great, Jack. It just doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> like <laughs> it's really nice. Yeah. It just doesn't do anything. Um, yeah. And it wasn't minimalism. It was just, you know, I was really interested in sound and, and the visceral, the visceral side of music. So, yeah. So yeah, but and well, I, go on. I can I can I can also understand that uh, like when you're talking talking about all these virtual instruments, like some people just plug in massive and they they have all of these their list of instruments is just huge and they navigate, but they are still able to navigate through all of the options. So my idea is, you know, some people just open up massive and they click a preset and they edit it a little bit and that's it. Um, and so. But they must be, my theory is that they must be restricting themselves in other ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where, I, you know, you or I, we might be restricting ourselves just within Massive or with me, just within like a few waveforms, um, not using presets, creating our own sounds. We've created our own box. But the people who have hundreds of plugins and hundreds of these instruments and they can just open up one and they pick one and they, um, either it's a preset or they make their own, they're still, they're able to navigate these and not feel so overwhelmed. So they must be restricting themselves in other ways. Maybe they're restricting themselves in time. Maybe they only have five, five minutes to figure out what the sound is. Maybe, you, you know what I mean? Right, like, yeah. Um, and that might not be a conscious and, process. I mean, that it sounds like right. you and I think particularly carefully about like the, uh, I don't know what to call it. I suppose the meta <laughs> kind of looking at at composition yeah. and things like that. Um, but that my instinct is that with with anyone who's who's uh, who's good at anything, they are employing these principles anyway, whether it's unconsciously or not. Um, yeah, I, I would I would I would agree with that. I mean, and I it, part of me kind of <laughs> wants to try it. You know, like just jump off a cliff and just get a hundred instruments. Yeah, and just open one up and just spend uh, five minutes finding one and that's it and that's the one (laughs) right and then moving on because you know it's not that um restricting myself in my way is any better than the way other people restrict themselves it's just like a a new a different skill set and a different flow and the computer and well for me ableton welcomes both approaches yeah. Um, it was like, uh, there was one, there was one composer, I was reading an interview where, uh, he, for most of his stuff, he takes a similar approach to me. He just like, I, I like really tight boxes and I'm just going to explore that box really thoroughly. 
but then he had a certain project. He was writing music for a certain video game and he didn't have very much time. So what he said was like, was I'm going to only compose using loops. Right. That's it. I'm just going to use loops. You know, so I'm not going to worry about creating my own sounds or creating my own drum palette. It's, it's all going to be in loops, and I'm just seeing the, like, the little demon inside of me that grew up in you know restrictive classical, I suppose, environment says that's not composing. You know, like that's not allowed. Right. You know, it's cheating and whatever. Right. And actually, like what we're saying is that that's completely just you're just coming at it. You're framing it from one angle, uh, which, exactly, is, which is exactly. the wrong way to think about it. So I, right. I remember the first. Sorry, were you going to go on? Yeah, no, I, I was. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Um, it, there's, there, there is part in the back of my mind. Yeah, it's like that's not right. You should be creating your own loops. Like the, it's, <laughs> it's like I mentioned at the beginning, like this question that the, the level of intentionality, like, it, it, mm. is a good thing to think about. But also, you got to you got to grade it. Like, you don't have to have a hundred percent intention. I, I think that's the right. weight that I feel as a composer sometimes is that. I have to have expected the thing to have happened in the way that it's happened. Uh, and I have to yeah. have foreseen it. You know, it's like Hindemith yeah. at the beginning of his train uh, is one of his composition books. He says something really lofty about like, you know, the composer should see in a split second, the entire symphony and be able to fill it in, you know? And, and I remember reading that at the age of 15 or something when I was trying to get serious and just being completely yeah. <laughs> overwhelmed by it. Like, yeah. I'll never do that. And I never should. It's an awful way to think about it personally. Yeah. But the- well, I, I, I like to put, I mean, just to challenge that always, I always try to put some kind of random element, even if it's yeah. a, a, some, some random effect or a random range within an LFO or something. Cool. Yeah. You know, some kind of randomness where it's just impossible for me to know. Yeah. Uh, and it's, a, there's a, a little bit of this, uh, I'm getting, I, I guess the more I've gotten into, uh, technology and writing for computers i'm so much more into jumping off the cliff yeah you know i don't know i don't know what it is where before playing the piano it's very tightly controlled i have to know what the form is i need to know what's going to happen um but but you must you must bring in some of the material that you're like i I just remember the one of the best composition lessons i ever had when i was younger at a guy at guildhall uh i've forgotten his name i'll try and link to him again in the show notes but uh he, he on on day one he kind of said you know, restrict yourself with three rules. Okay, I'll use seconds and fourths, and I'll only use dotted notes uh, on the you know f- from ever apart from every note in a bar. And then, but his point was not that you then write a piece like that. It's that you start generating material with the weight of I must write something good taken off your shoulders. Right. And then, and then you right. break your own rules because it's that cliche of learn the rules so that you can break them. Well, you've got to create your own rules first if. And of course, this is, this is, you're doing this consciously if you aren't inspired, if inspiration isn't kind of flowing through you, it's a way of, so do you find that kind of when you start out in terms of musical material, let's talk like kind of, you know, melody, harmony and motifs and stuff like that. Do you start out with that kind of thing or is it just, you're just hearing stuff in your head and you're expressing it? Um, it's not, it's not really, um, one or the other, uh, it's, Um, I think it's mostly these days, it's just play. Um, I mean, I haven't, um, I think it just starts out with, um, um, like, can I create this sound and what, what's going to happen when I make this sound? Uh, does this sound sound more ambient, you know, and then responding to what you've created, I think is the, is the next step. So, 
Um, you mean in terms of development of the piece? Yeah, in terms of development of the piece or, or development of the next measure. Um, and that can happen with one instrument, but that can also happen um, at, the, at the computer. It, it can be much more organic. It's not, you're not working on one line. You can work on the melody line and the drum line at the same time. <laughs> um, and you can make them, uh, you can develop them together at the same, at the same time. Um, you know, you know, and you're, you're, you're going back and forth and I don't know it's, there's not, it's not, uh, yeah, it's much more organic, but for yeah. me, it's, it's all, about, it's all about the play. Yeah. Cause it sounds I like think. you're in, you're in very much in flow with it. So to, to, to even ask you about it, it's probably a bit unfair and annoying, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I've never, um, yeah, I might start with a, I mean, the, the thing I find with, if I, if I decide, oh, I'm going to start with this melody or I'm going to start with this chord, um, like already I've, 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 imp- I've imposed a certain structure that just might not make sense. Okay. Yeah. You know, cause well, what if the sound that I produce, um, d- doesn't agree with the chord <laughs> or what if the sound doesn't agree with the chord progression or, um, I think, but if you approach everything with a, a sense of play and experimentation and, and improvising, then you, it doesn't really matter what you start with as long as you start, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's probably the hardest part is, um, is just starting is just go, just go, just jump off the cliff. It doesn't, Either the first thing you write down is not going to be great, so just play with it. Um, but if you say I'm going, if, you know, do I start with a chord progression? Do I start with a melody? Um, I, I, you know, yeah, I don't. Um, sometimes I, sometimes it might start as a melody, but um, I, I don't know. It's it's a. I actually find that when people ask about composition, that's the common question: is like, what do I, what do I start with? How do I get, how, you know, do I start with a chord and move a chord around or do I start with a drum beat? And I don't know if that's the right question to ask. Yeah. I think it's, it's just how do I start? And the answer is just, just start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. No, that's a perfect you know, answer. Yeah. What's, what's the first note I write? I don't know. Just write a note. <laughs> just, just start with that note, play it and listen to it back. And, and, um, and play and then just keep on interacting with it and responding to it and get feedback. I think, um, and that's more the approach I've been trying to take is just jumping off the cliff. Um, every time I, I'm starting something new. Great. Yeah. Well, we should probably start wrapping up soon cause I'm aware we're, we're about the hour mark now or perhaps even more um cool but uh just before we go i'd love to ask a few kind of quick questions if that's all right just uh yeah um we haven't really gotten into who you've played with and, and what you're up to but there's uh there's a really special project that you're into uh you have been for a while called myriad uh, is it, or is it myriad three sorry myriad three and three tell us a little bit about about that project so myriad three is a um is a piano bass and drum trio we were all at one point students at the university of toronto so we all have uh backgrounds in jazz but we also have 
lots of other interests um, like classical music and rock music and electronic music. And we started in 2010. And since then we've released uh, three albums, uh, four, if you include the chiptune album, um, we've toured uh, all around the world, um, Canada, us, uh, Europe. Uh, we played at Ronnie Scott's, uh, in London. Um, we were in, uh, the Tokyo, at the Tokyo jazz festival, just, uh, um, about a few, just a few weeks ago. Uh, yeah, and that's kind of my perf- lately. That's been my performing performance outlet. I mean, it's a composition outlet as well. But the other guys write for the band as well. It's a it's a co led band. It's not my band. It's our band. You've got a hilarious we video all- about that actually on your website, which I'll, I'll yeah. Watch too as well. <laughs> yeah, we all we all um, you're all wanting to lead. <laughs> yeah, we're all yeah. yeah. No, um, we all contribute, you know, to the workings of the band. Yeah, and you hear um, that immediately as soon as you start listening. Yeah, we book uh, we book the band ourselves. Um, I, you know, we write grants. We do all the design and social media stuff, and we all have different tasks. Like Ernesto does a lot of booking. I do a lot of grant writing. Dan does a lot of design and and uh, social media stuff. Um, so we're kind of a, a team in that way. Um, a, a leader, a leaderless band. Yeah. Um, and that helps for, you know, for, for if you want to form a band, you know, make the, make a musical connection with your bandmates, but um, it's really helpful. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what the, what it's like uh, having a band, in in the uk or in europe but in canada uh when all the all the band duties all the music the the business duties (laughs) it's much easier when it's all split up sure yeah Uh, like the booking and the grant writing is are can be pretty overwhelming for one person so this way i can be in a band i can perform i can tour and i can still practice (laughs) yeah where otherwise i would just be i would just be running a business all day cool uh and then one last question which is about really your favorite musicians on your site you've got a number of well quite a lot of transcriptions you put up there for bud powell and doug riley and and monk as well but uh none of of meldow but he sounded like he was a a favorite pianist as well who who are some of the other players that you really respect and have listened to over the years uh well, I'll just narrow it down to piano players. Yeah, I was going to say actually, just <laughs> piano players. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, I've done, they're not up on the website, but I've transcribed a lot of John Taylor, um, a lot of Fred Hirsch. Um, uh, I, actually, when people ask me about my favorite players, uh, I'll mention this now. Um, it's and I, I, I just caught myself. I just caught myself doing it. Um, you, we always go with the those superstars, the people, you know, like Bud Powell, sure, and too, Monk, yeah. Oscar, and uh, Fred Hirsch and John Taylor. But really, growing up as a as a student, my the, my biggest influences were the musicians in the local scene. Um, the my te- the teachers who I was studying with, so like people like Nancy Walker and Kirk McDonald, Brian Dickinson, Gary Williamson. Um, 
like uh, Terry Promaine. Like, there's like all of these um, people in the city that, uh, you know, piano players and non-piano players that I think are just as much part of the, you know, the education of students as the Oscar Petersons are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, you know, and I have a, a Doug Riley is one of them. Um, Doug Riley was a piano player from Toronto. His transcriptions are up on my site. Um, he was also a really badass B3 player. Right. Uh, had a really huge influence on, on the Canadian music scene. Um, and, but these are things that, uh, people from outside of Canada in the, even some people from Canada or people from these people's, their hometown don't understand and they don't realize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, it's, it's important to have that, that balance of, um, of local, national and international music scenes being uh, a part of the education and influencing, um, influencing students. Um, and I mean, I, I partly say that because it was important to my, <laughs> to my, yeah. uh, my, uh, my education, like going to jazz clubs every, every Friday and Saturday when I was in high school and going to see my teachers play, it was the best, it was the best experiences. Um, so, and I'm sure, um, you can find, you know, similar, similar stories with other people in other, other scenes, you know, whether it be in Toronto or, um, in, uh, uh, cities in the UK or, or, or other places in Europe, there's this, you know, there's this, uh, local scene that influenced the, t- the influenced the student. And then that student had this, uh, the foundation to learn or even to create their own business, uh, of touring and, um, and get into the market, you know, mm-hmm. the music market. Um, yeah. I, I have, the, I have that, I have this thing where, when, when, a, when a student, when I, when I meet a student for a first time and they say, Oh yeah, I'm from, I'm from Nanaimo, BC. I, I kind of know who their teachers are, <laughs> you know, it's because it's all, it's all part of the, I don't know, the garden, the garden, you know, the, that's, uh, that's supporting the, the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sounds great. So when it I talk, like a, it's yeah, such when, a great, yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. It was great for me. I mean, it's all, it always needs, uh, tweaking here and there i always encourage my i always encourage my students to yeah transcribe some bud yeah try, check out john taylor um yeah but oh yeah maybe you should also check out somebody who's playing in toronto mm-hmm. not that I, they i'm encouraging the transcribe me <laughs> you know which they're welcome to do yeah but there's so many other piano players here there's that, local input you know it's rather than the being lo- in in the globalized kind of uh globalized kind of world Right, because those local those local players, whom they may they may or may not be familiar with, are have probably influenced their playing in ways that they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, so you know, it's it's uh, going going to a going to the source in a way. Um, yeah. And so, um, and so, what's next for you uh, 
in, in your work? Um, well, next I'm um, working on some uh, Myriad tours for next year, Europe in April and May. We usually attend the Jazz Ahead Conference in Bremen uh, in April. We're hoping to do some uh, jazz festival tours uh, in Canada next summer, possibly a, Tokyo, uh, a Japan tour next year. Um, and then there's uh, I'm writing some music for uh, for this video game. Uh, it's a music therapy video game for kids with motor disabilities. Right. Fab. So. Um, so uh, kids with motor disabilities can't use traditional video game controllers. So they use, let's say, uh, a shaker as their controller. So the Xbox Connect can detect their hand movements and the sound of the shaker, and that becomes their input, and that becomes their controller. So we're designing uh, levels and games and music to fit these... Um, these music therapy driven uh, games for kids. So that's also kind of an ongoing project for me. Fab. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much, Chris, for, for coming on. It's um, been really fab to dive into some of these projects, uh, sorry, topics um, and really appreciate your time again on a Sunday yep. afternoon. <laughs> my, yeah, my pleasure. There's, I, I don't have uh, weekends. Every day is the same for me. So. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I've been teaching all day as well. So. <laughs> yeah. Great. All right. Well, thanks again and uh take care. Thanks, Jack. <laughs>